0: You're listening to World Building for Masochists.
1: And we're wondering
2: why we do this to ourselves. Because I have a degree in anthropology and archaeology, and I've always liked, I don't know, looking at other people's stuff. I'm Martha Wells. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris.
3: I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca, and this is episode 61 The Search for Intelligent Life.
0: Welcome back, listeners. We are so excited today to be bringing a special guest onto the podcast, Martha Wells. Welcome. Thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: We are so excited to dive in and talk um, world building on a topic that we really haven't gotten to talk about much in this podcast, which is non-human but sentient life. Um, so, Martha, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your work and maybe what you love about world building, or love to hate about world building?
2: Well, I've been a professional writer since 1993 when my first fantasy novel came out from Tor Books, The Element of Fire. And it was kind of a historical, a lot of my early fantasy was really strictly historical based in the world building. It wasn't set in a real world time period, but it was secondary world, like The Element of Fire and the Illyrian books were very heavily based on uh, Europe, France, um, Vienna, uh, those kinds of places, trying, with me trying to stick very closely to that, that material culture, but with um, uh, magic and my sort of my invented, invented world. Later on, I got more further afield in the world building doing things like City of Bones and uh, the Books of the Raxura, where it's just a completely created world that's not based on any particular time period. And just kind of, especially with the Books of the Raxura, I'm trying to kind of take it as far as I can and just um, up my game on <laughs> and... and push myself and test myself on what I can actually come up with. And then now it's like I've been doing some science fiction with uh, the Murderbot Diaries and going, because I've always been a big science fiction fan and reader, so kind of going back to that, you know, that multi-world galaxy feeling that um, I captured me when I first saw Star Wars when I was 13 years old.
0: (laughs) What was it like um, making the switch from fantasy world building and fantasy writing to sci-fi?
2: Um, it wasn't that um, big a leap because I'm not really. I'm in my head. I'm doing space opera. I know Murderbot gets called uh, hard science fiction a lot, but I really think of it as space opera because none of the how the how the the ships work, how the wormholes work, none of that is explained. Or because Murderbot doesn't <laughs> care. It really helps to have a character that just literally does not really care about the underpinnings of its world that's a great (laughs) yeah i mean it could probably it could probably tell you all about you know the entertainment industry and how the shows are are you know fed into the the different feeds and and you know who pays for that and what goes on but you know how the ship actually gets from point a to point b it could not care less so yeah that's um that's the kind of world building i focus on in in
3: uh, murderbot i always think that's the, the best tip is having your point of character just not be interested in the details of how things work yeah. and therefore you never have to explain them
0: well and it's it's such a realistic perspective to take to and i think that we've we've hit on this but i think murderbot is such a fantastic example of well why why the heck would he care you know what <laughs> What, yeah. what, why yeah. would my character care about this? Why, why is she explaining this right now? Like, no, this is, this is not for my character's benefit or anything having to do with them. Like, I'm just thinking of my audience at this point. And should I, is that actually a good idea? So I think it's a good place to kind of interrogate your writing. Like, what does my character actually care about? What should I be talking about?
2: Like if you were in a secondary world fantasy right now, would you bother explaining how a car worked?
0: Not unless I was a mechanic. Probably not
3: yeah I mean, we've all been on planes and we've never sat there going this is how the jet engine works on the plane yeah
0: yeah well i was honestly once sitting next to my physicist husband who says you know there are parts of this that we don't actually understand like as we're it's, taking off thank you it's actually magic
1: it actually is
3: it's just that's fantastic there's... i
0: appreciate hearing that at this moment <laughs> was not afraid of flying before but now <laughs> it's
3: good. that's why you have to turn off your cell phone because they don't know what will make it not work <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> the cell phone might interfere with the magic. So. That's right. That's a better explanation than they try to give you on the plane.
0: <laughs> so I know when we when we first talked about having you on Martha, the topic that came to mind was talking about non-human intelligent life because Murderbot is so awesome mm-hmm. um, and so well integrated into the world and so almost well, representative of of the world and the differences between what you're reading. In those books, and and what we you know experience in our real life, what made you want to write a sentient non-human?
2: I've been doing it before in the books of the Raxura, uh, which was uh, one, two, three, four, five novels and two collections of two novella collections, and uh, none of the characters in that are human, but it's a fantasy. It's you know particularly a fantasy world. With Murderbot, when I came up with the idea for All Systems Red, it was so obviously a science fiction uh, idea about uh, a person that was part uh, an an artificial intelligence. So it just, I mean, I guess I could have made it work in fantasy, but it would have been really, I don't know, it would have probably been very hand-wavy. It just would not have worked out nearly as well. And also, I wanted it. I wanted it to be a novella, so I didn't want to spend a ton of time on the world building. I kind of wanted it to the reader to pick it up as you know, for Murderbot to be that kind of narrator that just kind of starts in the middle and tells you what you know what you need to know for the story to progress, but nothing else.
1: And everything kind of went on from there. It's funny we talk sometimes about the fish out of water protagonist and how that can be a way to introduce world building and to explain things but the reverse of that is obviously the fish in water that's just swimming through it and doesn't need to comment on the water because <laughs> that's just its whole world the fish yes. in water
2: and i actually love the the fish out of water protagonist because that does uh, that does give you so many options for you know starting to to let the reader see the world also when uh one of my favorites is a protagonist who is when it starts is traveling from one place to another into some new place which gives them all the reasons to describe things and talk about what's going on as opposed to you know something they've done every day
0: so one thing I was thinking of was obviously um Martha you've written some fantastic examples of the intelligent non-human as as character are there any others that you guys think of as just like fantastic examples or or perhaps some not so fantastic examples because it's a tricky subject to write. I mean, I feel like there's kind of a, a long history of writing non-human characters, kind of writing you know different fantasy races and things like that, and sometimes it hits an uncomfortable territory.
2: The history of science fiction is just rife with that. Um, I can't think of any specific examples, but just remembering the the kind of more pulpy books I read, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, and, you know, the the pulp paperbacks, and just, you know, the evil, (laughs) the evil race that was just, the thinly disguised um, Yellow Peril kind of stuff, you had the actual Yellow Peril stuff in in the uh, pulp adventure, and then you had the thinly disguised versions in science fiction, you know, they were all afraid the communists were going to come and do whatever. And and there's all these, you know, like thinly disguised alien races that are, that are obviously uh, like real-world analogs to whatever the writer was <laughs> most racist about at that particular moment. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's just so many bad examples. I really think it's... I was trying to remember good examples. And actually, the first ones I remember really clearly are probably... Um, Phyllis Gottlieb's books. Um, uh, my favorite was A Judgment of Dragons, but in her books there was galactic, you know, galactic-spanning civilizations and with tons of different alien uh, races that were, you know, coming together and working together, and, and she was really good at that, and that's, that's probably one of the first ones that I really remember so clearly. I'm sure, I know it was done before, but I think the way she did it was with a lot more... Uh, thoughtfulness and showing being respectful to the different races and not doing like cartoonish kind of aliens but actually really thinking about how these people would live on, in their environment and how they would interact with humans and what that would mean and she also had a, an alien race that are kind of uh, large telepathic cats so I mean that was <laughs> the best book that was, that was per, uh, totally awesome and also, um, speaking of you know, like cats, uh, The Pride of Cheneur books by C.J. Cherry. That was another big one. I'm not sure of the timing on that one. I think that was a bit later, but um, um, I love those so much. Oh, I had another one, and now I've forgotten what it is. Oh, um, Leviathan's Deep by jage Carr, which I'm not sure a lot of people remember, but um, that's a really good example of a story where... The, it's from an alien perspective, the the character, the perspective of an alien character, like the Pride of Genera books is, and it's about that character and her people interacting with humans, and it's about the humans basically trying to see the aliens in their own image and not understanding that the behaviors they were seeing, what those behaviors really meant, and it ends up with the humans getting into a lot of trouble. And it's not it's not a happy book. It's a really depressing book. In the end, the world build building is just incredible and beautiful. And it's, I I think it's fairly different at the time to show at the time it was written to show humans kind of blundering in and not understanding what they were encountering and how badly that turned out for everybody. But um, it's just really great. And I'm uh, I'm it's, and I don't ever hear anybody talk about it. I don't see it mentioned in a lot of places. So I'm not sure, um, I don't think it was that popular at the time. But it is such a downer ending, so <laughs> I can kinda see I can see why it might not have the people would have been like, Oh <laughs> I don't want to read that again.
3: Though that that does bring to mind how often in fantasy and science fiction while we have you know either aliens or fantasy races humans are always presented as these like vast multicultural like humans do all the sorts of things and have all these different things and each of the fantasy races or aliens basically they have their one thing they've got they've got their hat and that's what the they do and there is no cultural <laughs> variation there's no there's nobody who's just like, but I just wanted to sing. <laughs> like, no, yeah. you're a dwarf. You'll
1: mine. That's what you do. <laughs> that's what you
3: do. Yeah. yeah.
1: You're not starting so, dwarf opera. <laughs> get back into, so, it, get back underground. It is, yeah. Right? It's,
0: you know, it it makes it very easy to shorthand when you're doing non-human races. And I think that that's a trap that's really easy to fall into. You know, not, not that we don't love our dwarves and elves, but, you know, it it makes it very easy to create, basically create stereotypes and roll with that. And I think I popped in our, um, kind of, the, the chat we had before this, one of the articles I love about this is N.K. Jemisin's um, essay that she wrote a while ago on orcs. It's on her blog, but the, um, the unbearable baggage of, of orking. that basically, if you're going to create a race <laughs> just to be the bad guys, like, isn't there something inherently ick about that um even even if it's not an analog to any particular real world culture which you have a hard time i think arguing that there's not something analog about orcs but um even if there's not isn't there something kind of kind of ick about creating a race just to be the bad guys and having this assumption that you can have a monolithic you know badness about a race or a species or whatever um, that that kind of belies some problematic thinking.
3: Well, and tied to that is this weird idea we've somehow gotten in fantasy of, you know, you said we love our elves and dwarves, but why do we love our, like, why are elves and dwarves and orcs so ubiquitous in fantasy when, like, so much of it is just a copy and paste off of the version of those that Tolkien did, and then Dungeons & Dragons copied and pasted from from the Tolkien, and then everybody else kind of copied and pasted from Dungeons and & Dragons, and that's sort of been this accepted thing when, like, that's probably the biggest, like, fantasy world building presumption, if we're gonna dig into Choose versus Presume, that goes unexamined. And I think a lot of people just do that because they think that's what fantasy is supposed to be rather than necessarily because they are thinking about what that really is going to mean in their worlds.
2: Yeah. And there's an assumption that, yeah, that assumption that all fantasy it's, it's elves and dwarves and unicorns. And and it's, and it really is just from my own reading, it's such a small percentage of fantasy it's just, but it's such a popular idea that, like, takes over. It's like, I can't remember the last time I read a fantasy novel that had, that used, like, elves and dwarves, you know, that wasn't actually <laughs> Lord of the Rings, you know. <laughs> so, it's like, the, there's there's an idea with science fiction that everything in science fiction is about flying saucers, and flying saucers coming to Earth, too. And I guess they're just older ideas that... that um, are, there are stereotypes of science fiction and fantasy, but I mean there are there are you know books with elves and dwarves. I'm thinking you know Terry Brooks and
3: Does the Wheel of Time sure have elves and dwarves? I I have I, I don't the remember. And The Witcher does. The Witcher books do.
2: Yes, The Witcher. The does. Witcher does, but in a really kind of different. It, it's got a different feel to it. At least the at least the the bits I've seen. And there's also the idea that of one... That's one very Western, particularly uh, United States, sort of pop culture version of Elves and Dwarves. And then as opposed... is drawn from, again, the popularity of Lord of the Rings. But there's also... You can also... Anything you can take and um, kind of reinvigorate when you approach it from different points of view. Like... um, I'm trying to think of good examples. One that popped into my head was
1: uh, the goblin emperor and how that so oh, yeah, upends yeah. the expectations of what, you know, goblin means and, and divorces it from a lot of its really problematic racial stereotyping and, and roots of you know, the physical features attributed to goblins certainly have a highly anti Semitic background yeah. and it's it's a <laughs> dicey one to engage with, but the culture created around that world's goblins and they're the standard there you know it's not i think we also often so often define all of these races in opposition to humanity and i like seeing them in a world where the humans don't exist and there's not that that yeah safe mirror for the reader yeah that's
2: what i really like that's what i like too i like the alien viewpoint because it's just more interesting it's like i'm tired of writing books about <laughs> humans <laughs> I, you know I want to do aliens I want to do AI you know sick of humans is like kind of a whole mood isn't <laughs> it <laughs> yes it really is humans it are really bad. is also to go with the the goblin emperor example there's uh, uprooted um, is it by name Naaman- Na- it's, no it's not uprooted it's the other one spinning, uh, spinning, uh, spinning, silver? Yeah. spinning silver spinning yeah. silver by Naomi Novik, that's got a different view of elves. It's really that's really spooky and creepy and uh until again until the character gets there and really starts to get to know them and you see, you know, kind of both sides. But yeah, they talk about um people talk about old tropes that they're tired of and yet we've only seen one point of that's what I've been trying to say. That's why I've been trying to say earlier. There's these old tropes that people think they're tired of, but they've only seen them from one point of view. And when you start seeing them from different cultures, uh, kind of like we're getting now in science fiction and fantasy with all the new voices that are coming out with novels and stories, novellas, uh, and you're seeing these different viewpoints, these different versions of these tropes uh, engaged with in different ways, and that's made them exciting again. So you know it can say elves and dwarves are boring and then someone's going to someone's going to sit down and come up with 20 examples of someone who people who, different authors who use them and just great. Or someone's going to come out
0: with that dwarf opera book that we've been just <laughs> waiting for. Yes. Yeah. So here's a question that I don't expect us to answer with any kind of finality, but if we're talking about sentient intelligent non-human life, how do we define sentient and intelligent? in that context.
2: Well, I think it's easy to define it when you're making up the world. (laughs) It's in the real world, I think, that we get the problem because, you know, we can... And it feels like they keep pushing that definition because every time you know, like octopi or dolphins or something meet that definition, somehow it's like, okay, well, now it's it's communication. Oh, well, they communicate Now it's something else. Now they have to do brain <laughs> surgery. Now they have to, you know, write an alphabet. <laughs> tool you use know, it was to just brain like, it surgery. always like, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's like tool use used to be one of the things. Oh, well, octopi are using tools. Okay, now <laughs> then that's not one of the, it needs all these other things too. You know, so I, I, I seeing the definition pushed further and further, pushing the boat further out as you know people swim trying to get on kind of thing but I don't know I think communication is such a big one the ability to communicate with um, with other beings basically that's something you can see I mean we communicate with animals uh, one of the questions earlier of the in the, the chat was um, examples of non-human intelligence and cats was the first thing that came to mind I wish I could communicate more with them I could say you know, I'm giving you this medicine because you're sick and not because I just want to make you taste the evil pill or whatever. Oh, gosh, so
1: if I could reason with mine and get him to not turn into a yeah. tornado of claws when a pill happens, yes. yeah, I'd, that'd be nice. Yeah. I like that.
0: Yeah, when the cat carrier comes out and the feel bus- re- saw happens,
2: and it's like... yeah, They'd probably be relieved, too. Yeah. They'd just be oh, relieved. Yeah. like, why too. didn't you say? I just thought you were... <laughs> thought you'd lost your mind. <laughs> was she, was she just said no, something.
1: I, I feel like in my head I sort of divide things, and these are certainly not technical, philosophical divisions, it's only my own sense of things. It's like between sentient being alive things that can feel, intelligent being a spectrum of, of some degree of communication or tool using and things like that, and then like sapient being the ability to reason and And having that sort of level of the ability to perform critical analysis and things like that, to be aware of the fact that you're thinking and communicating and and all these other things. And I don't I don't know how you measure that. You know, I don't know how we would ever know without having that common language with dolphins or octopi. Maybe they can reason, and we just don't know it. But when you're creating a world, you can sort of make it yeah. a little a little clearer. I'm always really amused when an author introduces like a cat or a horse or something. That can communicate using human language, but is not a human level of intelligence. Like, you're still just getting, like, animal-level awareness. <laughs> there was some... Oh, who was it? Someone did it with unicorns. And, and like, I can't remember who the author was, <laughs> but somebody did it with unicorns. And their unicorns could communicate, but were just dumb as bricks. just, <laughs> Just nothing going yeah. on. But they could talk. <laughs> so you could just hear them just... <laughs> your hair's so pretty. Yeah. I like your pretty hair just constantly. It's like, <laughs> wow, that's an annoying talking animal.
2: <laughs> I always thought, do y'all remember Sequest? Oh, yeah. It was a long time ago, TV series, but but they had the talking dolphin. And I thought that dolphin is not, if a dolphin could talk, it would be all poop <laughs> and sex. And it was just not, you know, it it was just not saying dolphin things. They could have made it So much more interesting and funny that they really have to keep an eye on the dolphin when it's talking.
3: Do not let the dolphin talk in front of notable people.
2: Yes, basically. (laughs) Who is on dolphin duty today? Please stop it from telling Alexa to go, you know, do things. but
0: it's interesting, too, like, that one would guess that different critters in different environments would develop kind of different kinds of intelligence to deal with whatever challenges their environment presented to them and then if you had that kind of intelligence progressed to the point of self-awareness and reasoning that it might look different than what humans do or would expect and I think it's kind of interesting that you know would we even recognize it if it was there because it's not what we expect to see and I think that that would be a harder thing to write in a lot of ways and part of what we have to do is constrained by what we're able to convey you know in a format that people can read and understand kind of i kind of like pushing that idea of like yeah like if an octopus was in fact capable of self-awareness and reasoning is there any way that i would ever know because i can't communicate with it and the things that it would do to demonstrate would look completely different and i would they would fly completely under my radar like i'm too dumb to pick it up yeah
2: they wouldn't make sense to you. Right. Um, that's one of the problems I've encountered in writing alien characters. And this is more with... this is It's been with Murderbot, too, but with the books of the Raxura, where people would ask, well, why are, they, why are they fighting? Why don't they just... You know, these two characters encounter each other. Uh, one's big and scary, and the other one just takes off. And they said, why didn't they just stop and talk? It's like, <laughs> because they're not human and big scary things eat you and it's like i had a lot of trouble explaining it's like the the interaction seems so when i'm really thinking in the point of view of those characters the interaction seems so natural and people would just say but why are they doing this and it's like what is that it doesn't make sense well it doesn't make sense for a twentieth 21st century human in you know a technological society but it does make sense for them it reminded me a bit of was it diana Wynne jones about uh Elfland, something in Poughkeepsie or whatever. She was pulling she she was pulling a scene from another writer's book, and the two characters talking. And she said, "You could make these two characters, you know, accountants <laughs> coming out of the courthouse. You know, there's nothing to suggest they're actually fantasy characters, which I don't think is a terribly bad thing. But I feel like that's sometimes readers don't want to make that mental shift. I had someone ask me one time how. How someone who wasn't, how I could have a character that wasn't human. The perspective, how I could write from the perspective of something that wasn't human. And I, and I, and that took me a minute and I said, you can be a person without being a human. And they went, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it was like, was it that simple? So yeah, some readers are not willing to come along on that journey with you. And I had, oh, the other thing with the, the books of the Raxura, there's a character that Basically, is alone and isolated from others of of his species. He's never seen them before. When he does encounter them, he finds out he's basically important to the society in a way he hadn't had any clue about. And one of the things he would have to do is basically would basically be the equivalent of an arranged marriage to someone he's just met. And um, someone was said that he didn't understand why the character was unhappy you know, and why that wasn't the solution to everything. Well, everything's <laughs> fine now. You're not alone anymore. It's like, yeah, just have this marriage to this strange person, you know, you've just encountered of these people that, that to you are, are pretty much a complete alien race, even though you're one of them because you've never, you know, lived with any of them before. You've never met any of them. You have no idea what this culture is like and what your place in it is. Yeah, everything's <laughs> fine. <laughs> and just, yeah, that 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 those are also the kind of people who say, I, I feel like one of the big points of the character was basically this response to long term trauma and having anxiety and depression and those kind of um, reactions. Well, it upset me a little bit because it really did feel like the kind of people where when they find out you have depression, they say, We'll just get over it. It's like, Oh, yeah, why didn't <laughs> have I try being happier? <laughs> <All> the- <laughs> Have you tried <laughs> being happy? Have you tried just not being anxious about things? Wait, you can do it's that? Like, you know, yeah. that was, I should have flipped that switch yeah. a while ago. It's like just, was I thinking. Well, I should have thought of that. What an amazing revelation you've had. And it always makes you want to say, well, have you tried being punched in the face? Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, it's just been, and it's like I was always somebody who really liked, I liked reading books. You know, when I was growing up, and there was... I feels like a far more limited diversity of voices, you know, like terribly limited diversity of voices as opposed to what we have now, which we still don't have enough for anything like equality, but we have, you know, we're getting more and more. But I always like seeing people who were really different, whose cultures were really different and how they navigated that. And not from the point of view of an outsider, but from the point of view of an insider. And those were, you know, the 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 fantasies i liked reading the best so it just kind of like I, it feels really strange to me and I always like you know i you know that when i was started to find the books with you know with the actual the alien character is the main character and is your viewpoint character and just kind of like being immersed in that different world view it always just seems really weird to me that people there are people who just don't accept that. And you call yourself a science fiction and fantasy fan and you can't deal with a non-human main character. It's like, (laughs) what the hell?
1: What I think is fun about sort of getting into that perspective goes back to a lot of our other world building topics. And you think about, okay, if I'm gonna craft a non-human intelligence and write from that perspective, I need to know what shaped that perspective and where is it different from humans. You know, if it's a species that is a collective hive mind, does the individual body mean anything to them? Or is it transferable and it doesn't matter if one dies and then maybe they meet humans and it's like, oh, we didn't realize you get so upset when, <laughs> when one <laughs> of you died, that's, that's weird. Yeah. Or, like, oh, or no, like the wormhole aliens <laughs> in Deep Space Nine that have no sense of past and present and future. They have no sense of time. And so how they perceive the universe is just such on a different level, but it, it taps into all of these other things we think about with world building. What shapes? their experience, what shapes their perspective, and then how do you fit yourself and thus the reader inside of that?
0: I mean, even like really seemingly trivial things. Like I was, this is a dumb example and I'm a dork. I was thinking about um, Apuleius as the golden ass and how it actually spends some time after the main character's turned into a donkey that he's like learning to live life as a donkey. And like, you know, if you were writing an intelligent donkey who had just lived life his whole life as a donkey, you wouldn't have that adjustment period. But there would still be things that would be different living life with hooves or eating hay or like if you were a ruminant, like your, your whole concept of meals and food and how you like eat would be completely different than ours. And just like it's, it's kind of silly stuff, but just basic physical differences can create some pretty interesting fodder for like yes we don't eat meals together but we all gather and chew our cud at the same time and that is our social time of the day and when we discuss important topics
2: is is ruminating time well that does make a lot of sense though
3: and that's one of the things Watership Down does so very well in 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 making that rabbity life be normalized but radically different from what human life would be and giving it that perspective throughout the whole book.
2: Yeah, that's another probably that was an influence on me is Watership Down, as I read that pretty early, too. I'm glad I didn't read his other books. (laughs) They're all just so horribly depressing. Watership Down was the cheery, happy (laughs) one compared to to the other. The other one's Um, dark. (laughs) Yes, the dreary dark. One star, (laughs) do not recommend. The physicality of a non-human character is so important. And because how they interact with their world physically as well as mentally, and their environment, what their environment is, is just so important to that point of view. And really, really thinking and trying to think deeply about what that would be like, what your characters' capabilities are, physical capabilities, and how what their challenges are. And I think that's one reason why um, there was a mention in the of. the Star Trek aliens where they have the little thingy on their forehead and that means stick that prosthetic in different places. it and... something yeah. like, yeah, you just, you just move it around. Yeah, different different races. Move the prosthetic perspect- <laughs> that. Yeah. And it'll be like, well, we all dress in blue and we play harps and that makes us aliens. And you're like, and the humans are like, oh, well, yes, I'm trying to pretend like that's really different. And they don't, can't get it or something because that they're, they're, these people are basically, like it'd be like encountering the planet of the all the redheaded people and trying to say well we live in a completely different way we've got red hair and you're like "Uh, okay (laughs) you know what do you what what are what is the starfleet people not expected to understand exactly about this different hair color thing but so yeah and i think the one of the examples of that done really well in at least in on the screen is farscape where you have so many different aliens of so many different, really different physical shapes and how interacting with humans. And I can't think of anything else that, that on TV at least, I think that really leaned into it quite so hard with so many of the main characters actually being real aliens. Even the most human-like, God, it's been so long since I, I, I can't remember his name, the really tall, angry guy that ended up becoming... John's best friend Dargo yes yes even he had the tongue thing which it's like when they finally showed that you're like oh okay that's different
3: (laughs) one of the things I loved about about that show show was also how they made humans be like the worst and weakest species out there (laughs) there's one bit where it's like no because your eyesight is the worst he's like what do you mean my eyesight is great it's like okay read that sign over there he's like what sign there? there's nothing written there.
2: i love that when he realized there were instructions for everything on the walls and, and everybody could else to read it from that, was, that like, was the best what? he just couldn't see the, the color that was that was that was brilliant
1: i feel like star wars does a good job of the we didn't just stick a prosthetic on it aliens in the background like cantina scenes stuff like that you start to get the otter shapes and and the the more interesting takes on physiology, but you still don't see that in the main characters. The main characters are still usually either human or near human. You know, you've got a Twilek, which is just an easy. Like yeah. once again, that's a human with something stuck on. Um, and there's practicality elements to that, I'm sure, at least in the live action stuff. But I'd like to see the you know the animated series. Like, they can look like whatever. You don't have to worry about that costume or makeup or anything. Like, go nuts. Yeah, Give us a is, gaseous cloud it form is kind character. Of
0: interesting that like our I mean, obviously, in, in written work, we did, we haven't had the issue of it, film doesn't do that. But we're getting to a point that film can do almost anything at this point, and yeah. we we still tend to tend to stick with the humanoid as our base for fantasy creatures and alien creatures. And it, I I will look forward to seeing what um, enterprising screenwriters get away with <laughs> in the coming years. Now that we can do you know, more interesting and varied things with the technology that we have.
2: Well, that was the cool thing about Farscape is there was no CGI. It was all the Henson Company. There's a story when they did the film, the first episode, they made an alien that was so big, it couldn't get into <laughs> the studio to film. And so they like had to just cut a hole in the wall and make it like a, a, a storefront and have the alien's face in there to get that puppet in. And it's like, that's just it's it's just so wild it's so i love them, that you know <laughs> who else oh we're gonna build a big alien yeah you, measure
1: the
2: door darn it
1: you want weird non-humans you yes. go to the jim henson company <laughs> yes. you get the skexies you, go to the you get the henson things company. in labyrinth that can take their heads off like that's where you get weird
2: <laughs> yes love it yeah and uh fraggle rock yes. the level of Ecosystems yes. all like intertwined in Fraggle Rock is really interesting.
1: I need to rewatch
0: that. Me too. Like the, little,
2: <laughs> the dozers. Yeah, the yeah. little people that yeah, are just the dozers. The, the dozers that just like they're creating those uh, those elaborate trains and and all their kind of stuff that all their little tunnels and everything they're just <laughs> ignoring the crap out of everybody else that's wandering through there. It's like that's a really uh, I'm. Uh, that's kind of what I was trying to go for in the books of the rexer when they have the levels of the different ecosystems, that are all kind of dependent on each other and all sort of like interacting. There's a few places where I use that. Um, but I got it from <laughs> Fraggle Rock. Basically. Love it.
3: I always remember with that, because I watched that a lot as a kid was there was one episode where the, I guess it was the trash heap was the wise creature that, that who realized yes. that everything in this underground world was reliant on radishes. Like, like everything boiled down to that. It's like, I'm just going to hide all the radishes and then everybody else will have to come together in unity and joy because cause this is so dependent on the ecosystem and then that'll be great. But it worked the exact opposite way that everything fell into complete chaos. Yes. <laughs> that That's the one that is stuck in my brain for... Thirty-five years or so.
2: Imposing an artificial <laughs> scarcity, in order to bring everybody together. Yeah, that doesn't. That doesn't. That's not what happens.
0: Well, I think it is interesting too that we kind of expect conflict in a lot of ways out of multi-species systems that we build. That you know, you you would expect that the the different critters in your different levels of ecosystem would have some animosity or something. And it's kind of interesting because why 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 do we expect conflict yeah and it just seems like that's it's usually admittedly part of it is again the conceit of you're writing a story so there needs to be a story so someone's gotta not get along with somebody somewhere maybe but yeah I mean is that is that something that we can? Poke back on a little bit, like why? Why do the elves and the dwarves fight anyway? Like, what? What's up with that?
1: Are they really competing for the same resources, or are I'm they really different so enough species they're that they they shouldn't <laughs> like, be? Like,
2: yeah, they're just they're they're occupying completely different ecological niches. So yeah, why why would they have any conflict? It doesn't make sense. That's one thing I've been doing in the books of the Raxor and the fantasy novel I just finished is dealing with looking at trying to look at cultures. That do not have war as a big part of their culture. That it's in the books of the Raxura, they never uh, there's culture there's basically species that predate on each other, but the uh, concept in the the current cultures they're occupying this world is is there's you don't really see any warfare at all. And in the the book I just finished, it's basically what happens when a one culture that comes up with a powerful weapon and starts to basically make war on all these other cultures that have lived peacefully for a long time where they they understand the concept of war but it's it's a very it's a very minor thing it's not like so much of our time in the western in the european world where war was just a cyclical event, you know, it was coming it went on for years and years and it was always, there's always a new one popping up and, and that there's that they just don't have that kind of conflict.
0: I just feel like humans in general, like we, we have a hard time with the concept of like, maybe you could not fight with each other just <laughs> maybe, possibly no, okay it's just... <laughs> It does. I mean, it's it is interesting how it that presumption of well, if you have neighbors, you're going to end up fighting with them, like sneaks into our world building and our writing and the way that we plot stories and all kinds of stuff. I've made it. Oh, I've yeah. made it farther
1: than I thought I would into this podcast before bringing up Terry Pratchett, as I <laughs> usually do. But this is a thing he pokes at. Like he starts off the Discworld series with a lot of those really standard fantasy tropes about the different fantasy races. And then over the course of all of the novels, they all sort of end up integrating because they realize, oh, wait, the trolls aren't going to eat us. They can't digest digest, um, carbon-based life forms. So, like, we've been totally misunderstanding this. (laughs) And they eventually bring in... The goblins, and they even, by the end of the Tiffany Aching series, start making peace with the elves. And it's like, he is un- unwinding that. He pokes back at that idea that the fantasy races have to be in conflict with each other, and instead is like, they all do, like you said, occupy different ecological niches. They can live together, and the Discworld series, taken from a, ma- a macro perspective, is the story of them figuring that out. And it's really cool. And I love Terry <laughs> Well,
2: He was awesome.
3: And also, how much conflict... Is stemmed from just, just different idea, different cultural ideas, or different biological ideas of what normal is. I'm, I'm thinking about how in uh, Orson Scott Card's *Speaker for the Dead*, they're like these pig aliens here on the planet with us. Every time we try to talk to them, they just murder somebody. But the pig aliens, for them, that's like how reproduction works with their biology is this thing that looks like ritual sacrifice so they think they're like we're doing a thing for you so you become we're helping we, yeah, we're helping and it's like no that kills us and they're like
0: yeah and oh and, and we don't turn into sentient trees <laughs> yes. after like, we die oh. i'm really glad that was our bad about the pig
3: that was our bad <laughs> and then the humans were like we want to help you so that you're you can give birth without killing the mother, and they're like, "What are you talking about? That's that's just not how birth works." <laughs> <laughs> they're like, they're like, "What a monstrous idea!" And like, but then once they like explain it to each other for real, they're like, "Oh, okay, sorry, that was our bad. We we really didn't <laughs> we didn't know that that's not how you work."
1: Misinterpreted what was happening there.
3: <laughs> and one of my favorite short stories out there is uh keith johnson's spar which is, is all about like an alien that you just can't communicate with and are not even sure if you can communicate with so it's this human woman who's in a Trapped in an escape pod with an alien creature that's just this pseudopod thing, and they're just constantly having sex out of a lack of anything else to do. <laughs> but also, she's not even sure she un- like is this a smart alien creature? Am I in this escape pod with the alien equivalent of a dog? Does it know what it's doing to me? Is sex is what I'm doing to it? Sex. I don't know, because there's no other communication other than these physical acts that we're doing to each other. It's it's a fascinating little short story, but it is just totally about this. I don't really know what's happening here in this, but we're communicating somehow on the most basic physical level, sort of. But maybe not, and maybe that's just what I'm importing onto my experience here, because that's all I know how to do.
2: I've, I've forgotten the title. It's a Janet Kagan book, Tell Something. It's the one where the person is, uh, the main character, is pretending to be, she's pretending to be like an interplanetary judge, and she goes to this planet where it's a scientific expedition made up of these different, they're all humans, but they come from these really all these really very different cultures, and they're trying to, evaluate this alien species on the planet to see whether it's intelligent or if it's just a, an animal species that happens to sort of look and act sometimes like an intelligent species and they can't figure out and if they if they aren't able to establish this a corporation is going to come and basically de- basically <laughs> just destroy the planet. And so as they do, I mean, why does everybody come up with that? Oh, because it's <laughs> incredibly likely. And so it's just a really fascinating book because it's like they're trying to communicate with this alien species that will just basically, they're sort of bird-like and they'll just stand and you can't, they can't even get past this basic, you know, the, the you know, waving at each other kind of communication. And But yet there's other indications that these are an intelligent species. It's just that their method of communication is so different that humans can't, you know... They're trying to say, is it visual, is it vocal, is it you know, like telepathic, you know, and they can't, they've gone through all the stuff trying to figure it out. And in the meantime, the, the different human cultures are all so very different in their communications. It's having um, the main character is coming in trying to facilitate this, and it's just a really great book. I don't have my Google open, so I can't look it up real quick.
0: We will promise for our listeners to follow up on the, <laughs> what book is this question so you can add it to your TBRs
2: ASAP. It's like Janet Kagan only wrote a few books, but they were all absolutely fabulous. Hellspark. I wasn't completely wrong. Yeah, it was Hellspark. The other one the other one I really love is Mirabelle, uh, which is about a generation ship uh, or the, the aftermath of a generation ship that comes and is um, trying to settle on a new planet and their database of all their genetic samples has been scrambled and so they have all these animal species and plant species and insect species and stuff but the the definitions of what they are are lost are separated from a lot of the the samples so they have to when they're trying to terraform they have to be really careful and then they end up getting a lot of stuff that's just bear crocodiles and combi- combinations and and the main character is basically kind of like a biologist in in emergency response team that has to go in and deal with this when these crop up that's mirabelle and that's a really great book too there's i think she only wrote a few some short stories and Hellspark and mirabelle and then you heard a song the star trek novel she's a fabulous writer
3: one of my favorites of the old school, oh yeah, Star Trek that's a novels. great novel. It's, Talking
2: about alien interacting, humans interacting with alien culture, that's a great one.
3: Because there, the whole thing is they find this other alien, you know, civilization, and just want some basic information about from them, and then they're the aliens, are just like, no, we're we're not going to tell you that. And then they finally suss out it's because as far as these aliens are concerned, they're all children, so they need to do the adulthood right thing, to get respect and like then we'll treat you like adults and tell you this thing and it's so then they're like oh okay we we have to do the adulthood right and it's it's a fun novel
2: i love that that's like such a great book and the the aliens that they're trying to help that are members of the federation don't have any of this stuff anymore because they split off from this other group so long ago so they're like we don't know what's going on (laughs) what are they talking about but yeah that's just yeah i love all her stuff
3: I have this thing in my eternally unfinished space opera setting where one of the alien cultures has worked out a whole system of like, is this other alien species? Is it an intelligent species or is it just like, a, you know, a clever animal or something like that? It's like we we've come up with like 35 different benchmarks and we consider a species intelligent if like if you have at least 12, then that's, you know. But then it's like but then there was this one species where they only had eight, but one of the eight was build spaceships. So we're kind of confused <laughs> <laughs> if we should count that one or not. And so we're we're leaning on the side if we're gonna count it, because who knows. But but yeah, the the what you what counts as intelligent or not and how that interaction even works within the context of your story and who can understand who is is a really fun thing to play with
2: yeah
0: yeah touched on this i love the idea of including life stages as part of that 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 some non-humans can have life stages that are vastly different i mean human life stages are already pretty interesting but we don't have like nymph and larval stages or anything like that so you know there's some fun (laughs) to be had there too of like no, we determined that it's not intelligent. It's it's just a grub. Like, oh, but the grub hatches out into this hyper-intelligent butterfly dragon thing. Oops. And now it's mad.
2: That's <laughs> mad because it remembers <laughs> what happened when it was... Uh, probably stop squishing them.
1: <laughs>
0: we
2: really should. <laughs> just let them eat the potato plants. It's fine.
3: <laughs> They're going, it's like, these human things just have like one shape their whole life
0: yeah like they they start weird. out kind of like their heads are sort of big but that's really about it you <laughs> just you just stretch out
3: they, they never go into a cocoon like what's up with that <laughs>
0: <laughs> so strange so i guess in sort of a wrapping up question in some ways though it's also an opening up into a giant other conversation like what are some of the ethical questions that you think about when writing non-humans
2: well i to a certain extent it doesn't come up so usually because i'm not writing humans interacting with non-humans i'm writing non-humans interacting with other non-humans i haven't had aliens in the murderbot universe yet even though they do they do do find evidence of aliens having existed but as the reader you don't know yet whether those aliens still exist and whether they're um, still out there somewhere you're just seeing these basically the equivalent of the humans moving through their ruins and encountering basically toxic waste dumps that of uh, what were alien you know power generating stuff it's not like the aliens are evil and we're leaving traps it's just that it's like a um a non-human coming to earth and walking into you know or accidentally opening a nuclear <laughs> waste container or something that's why i was trying to get across there i think the ethical considerations come up when you're using stereotypes that are applied to existing human groups and sort of taking those and applying them to the non-human races and trying to act like, well, it's okay because they're not really human when everybody knows it's still a harmful stereotype and it's such evoking, you know, the racist concept or the whatever that, that it originally comes from.
0: Yeah, and I think it was it, um, I think Cable Oso who first said um, on the podcast that You know, even if you are writing Second World or writing sci fi that is so far away from Earth that none of these, none of our Earth races are there. So it can't be that people who live here and now in our real world are still reading the book.
2: So. Yeah, it's like there's not a non human (laughs) audience. That's going to be able to take this at, you know, it's somehow objectively. It's like, it's not objective because it was written by a human who lives in 21st century earth and, you know, w- with all that baggage.
1: No non-human audience that we know of. <laughs> that,
0: we know
2: of. No
1: non- <laughs> that
0: we know That we of. know of.
1: Yet. That's something for the bucket <laughs> list. Be read by <laughs> <Yeah>. non-human intelligence. <laughs> yes. Someday. <It> slightly <laughs> more likely left. than the HBO deal. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I love too that you kind of poke at and murder about Martha is the what responsibility do we have to the things that we create, like as humans. And I think that it's really deftly done, that it's you know not like bonking us over the head with that as readers, but I think that it's there is a question of like when we are, you know, have characters in books who are creating non human life or are the inheritors of non-human life. Like, what what responsibility do we have? And kind of, like, what does that reflect about the responsibility that we feel toward other things in the real world, toward other people, future generations, whatever you want to dive into there? But I think that that's a really interesting place that you poked at.
2: Oh, well, good. Uh, one of the, the, actually, one of the stories I think really hits that square on the head is by Veena G M N Prasad, and it's I can't remember the name because I can't remember titles or names or uh, it's the one where the first sentient robot ends up in a museum in Japan somewhere, and it literally gets comes out like for twenty minutes to talk to the the you know and the do the little museum presentation to the audience and then that's it and then it's <laughs> just sitting around the rest of the time and it's a, it's not a sad story because it actually it, it ends up getting on the internet. And get basically finding a, a TV show that's about a, a, a young guy with a, a sentient robot that's they're off on adventures and gets into the fandom for that show and ends up making <laughs> friends and everything and uh, all online. But just the, the idea of that, yeah, that the, its creator, it came from this background where the, the, it was created by this guy and then it's like, oh, okay, on to the <laughs> next thing and it's like what, what about me you now it's you know it's out motive <laughs> and what about me and it's like well just go sit over there but yeah that's a that's a I think that I'm not it was up for a Yugo I think a Yugo in a Nebula I can't remember but anyway it's a fantastic story that really just kind of hits the nail on the head
3: that reminds me of the, the one Black Mirror episode with Miley Cyrus where like her she plays a pop star and like her handlers create this little like little AI doll thing of her and rather than to like sell to all her fans and it's you know supposed to be this simplistic AI that just like answers silly questions but rather than actually design a simple AI thing to be for the doll they just literally copy her brain and then block all of the parts that they don't Want to be part of the doll? So then, when the main characters are like fiddling with it and then unblock it, then it's like actually her in a doll being like, "What the hell is going on? Why am I stuck in a doll?" But it's just like it—it it, it is this, like all Black Mirror episodes. Like all Black Mirror horrifying. episodes, it's horrifying, but it's but it is horrifying, horrifying in the sort of like. Surely there was an easier way to do it than this massive ethical violation, but they just decided, no, this is this is the easier way to go. We just, you know, we'll just copy a whole human's brain and then hide the parts we don't like.
2: That's sort of a lot like that thing they were doing, they're still doing, I guess, where they take a, a deceased actor's performances and have them, you know, basically do the deep fake right. a little bit to have them say different things and it's like "Eh, it's just uh, would Humphrey
3: Bogart really want to pitch for coke I don't know I don't think so (laughs) yeah (laughs) who agreed to this
2: not without being paid a lot of money it's just yeah slippery slope very very I feel like we are
0: coming up on our hour and unless anyone has any other pressing thoughts or considerations I thought we might invite Martha to give us um as is our custom um, when we invite a guest on, we have a world that we're building on air, um, and we invite our guests to give us a little piece of trivia or a little something to slot into our world somewhere. So what have you got for us, Martha?
2: What I've got is funerary masks. You know, when you do the dead the dead person and you do the, the mask, that are like... St- their magical funerary masks, of course, and they do are like snapshots of the person's last words or, in some cases, their last curse. I love it. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs>
3: Listeners, you could not see his faces.
1: <laughs> curses, <is> goody! <laughs>
3: <laughs> but the sheer joy. <laughs> hey, tis both the season. Express.
1: This is true. Tis the season for death and curses.
0: It's
3: spoopy season.
1: Yeah, it is. It.
0: Well, Martha, thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Um, it's been a fantastic talk. Um, and thank you for the funerary masks. We
2: appreciate <laughs> them very much. <laughs> well, hope you enjoy them. And I really enjoyed being here. It was great talking to you guys.
3: Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on October 27th, where we'll be joined by Seanan McGuire to talk about multiverses and the borders between the many worlds you might build. I'd also like to remind you that we are a finalist for the Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast. If you are eligible to vote for the Hugos, we would love your consideration. And if you want to learn how you can be eligible, visit Discon3.org. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com We also have a Discord chat room linked in the about the show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.